Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Amen, amen. How many of you are glad to be announced of the Lord? Say amen. Amen. Glad to see you here this morning and uh, excited. Uh, I was hoping somebody would, would show up this morning. I know that the Kelts family, they're, uh, they're preaching, ministering in uh, Indiana right now. My wife is in Tomball at a baseball tournament. I watched Parker play his uh, 8 o'clock game this morning. It's really cool because these farm league fields that they have uh, out there have cameras everywhere. So you can watch the first baseline camera, the behind-the-plate camera, the center field. So I was able to watch and hear my wife screaming, Go, Parker, go! Go, Parker, go! So... So it was awesome because this morning I got to watch that, and they're actually playing right now, too. So I'm going to watch it while I... Pre- no, I'm not going to. I was just playing, just playing. Or am I? I don't know. Put it on the big screen. If y'all could put it on the back TV back there, I would appreciate it. But uh, thank you, David. But uh, I, I tell you, you know, I had an opportunity to go to the game this morning, but the message, what I'm sharing, is so important to me. Um, those of you that are watching online, uh, you know, welcome. So glad that you're here. Uh, I remind myself all the time, you know, the, the message that we're preaching, the, the emphasis, where we're going as a body is so important for people to hear and know. So when, when we preach on Sundays, and I hope you get this from us and from me especially, that when we preach on Sundays, it is never, uh, okay, well, what's next, or what should we do, or I just really don't have anything to talk about. There has been a shift in my thinking and in my heart and where and what God has done in me and through me and shown me that there is such clarity and revelation that, that the message has got to be preached, you know? It's just got to be preached. That's a good point. Somebody say amen. The gospel's just got to be preached. People have got to hear. So if you're here, we're in week number two of a series as we ran out of titles, and it's just a series we couldn't think of, so we just called it brand new. It's a brand new series. Uh, that's not really the reason, but it's called brand new. So uh, I hope that if you missed last week for some reason that you go back and you can watch it. You can watch it on our Facebook. You can listen into it on our podcast. And uh, our podcasts are downloaded a lot. Um, so that's really where a lot of our ministry takes place is, is in our podcast. Um, it's pretty awesome sometimes when you get a random email from someone in Colorado or New York who stumbled across our podcast, and they tell you that they've kind of been following and tracking along with uh, you as a church. And so that's part of our ministry, but I hope that you go back and listen to last week's service uh, sermon this week, because where we're going is really, really important. And a lot of what I'm going to say today, uh, you've heard us say, because we've been preaching this vein for five, six years but uh, there's a couple of new things I want to stir in to this. And, uh, and, and it's important that you hear this and that you discuss this outside of church. 
that you share this outside of church. And the reason is because I need you to come in prepared because some of the things that we're going to hit in the next few weeks are going to be tough to swallow. Okay? Uh, I already have it in my notes for next week and the week, you know, that, you know, not a lot of amening at this point. And so, but it's tough to swallow because basically here's what we talked about last week. I'm going to sum it up real, real quick. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but essentially the arrival of Jesus, and we've talked about this for years in this church, the arrival of Jesus signaled and inaugurated something brand spanking new. It wasn't religion 201. It wasn't Judaism 2.0. It wasn't an add-on to what they had already had. Jesus came and inaugurated something brand new, and it signaled the end of what, last week we discussed this, what we call the temple model. Everybody say temple model. The temple model. The temple model is a model that has been set up for generations, thousands and thousands of years. It's not just dealing with the Jewish temple. It goes all the way back to the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Uh, it goes. It, it is part of the Jewish system, uh, the Greeks and the Romans, ancient Judaism. And you can also find the temple model alive and well. Just briefly hit this today. Now, in the temple model, just briefly hit this, in the temple model, you always find these four components at work. Within a temple model system, you always find sacred places, okay? You have sacred places. You have a place that has been set up and designated to be a holy place, a place where special things happen, a place that is reverent, a place that is oftentimes built uh, for very sacred, special moments. Now, in that sacred place, you always find within a temple system sacred texts, okay? Sacred texts. Sacred texts, which are an inscription or an oracle or something that has been written, but you always find sacred text. Also in the temple model, you find sacred men. Now, up until in recent history, it's always only been men, very specifically on purpose, it has been men. But these sacred men reside within this sacred place, and they interpret sincere followers. Or uh, we said last week, it could be superstitious followers, because some people in their religious systems, it is more superstitious than it is anything else. Um, but what happens is you have these sacred men in these sacred places deciphering and interpreting these sacred texts to these sincere followers, and they say things to these followers like this. Now, here is the interpretation of what this sacred text means, and you are to live your life this way. And if you don't live your life this way, God's going to get you, right? God's going to get you. And in some cases, in some religions, they'll even go as far as to say, you will go to hell, okay? And that's what happens in this, in the temple model, sacred people, sacred places, sacred texts, and sincere followers. But uh, as, as we said last week, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he inaugurated something brand new. Everybody say brand new. 
brand new. And when Jesus came in, he brought something brand new, and it was a total departure from the temple model, the temple system. Now, this temple model, when Jesus showed up, he basically completed, okay, and in Greek, the word is actually used. So he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That word is actually to bring to a designated end. So Jesus brought this temple model to a designated end, and it stopped, and he launched something brand new, complete departure from that model. Now, when he did that, he established something that was brand new, and that was a new covenant. Everybody say new covenant. A covenant simply means arrangement. Okay, there was a new arrangement. When Jesus came in, Jesus started a new covenant that was between the people and God. And in that new covenant, he gave us a new command. Everybody say new command. Today is audience participation day. If you didn't know, I meant to put the sign up outside, but I forgot. So he gave us a new command. And in this, he said this, and this is big. Big deal because you got the temple model system that he's kind of abandoned. And he says, now I give you a new command. And this new command supersedes all other commands. Okay? And this is what we're going to talk about really in week three. We're going to hit this next week. But he says, if you get this one command right, then you don't even have to worry about the rest of the commandments. That's a good place to say amen. Because listen, if we were still living under the law, we got 630 laws that we are to uphold. I mean to the letter of the law. But he says, listen, this, this you have one command, and it supersedes all the other commandments, even the 10. Dun, dun, dun. That's where it gets scary, right? As good Christian people, that sometimes is the scary part. So in doing this, he brings a new covenant with a new command, and in that, he establishes a brand new ethic. That's what we're going to talk a little bit about today, and this is going to trickle down into all your behaviors, into all of your relationships, and this brand new ethic is going to cause the last thing that Jesus established was a brand new movement. So this new ethic that you begin to live out in your relationships, at work, in your families, and in, in, in every area of your life will bring about a new movement. And so Jesus, he, he goes into Caesarea Philippi. We talked about that last week. He goes into Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, uh, and he says to his followers, listen, I'm going to build a gathering. I'm going to build a congregation. I'm going to build an assembly. In Greek, he actually says, I'm going to build an ecclesia. Okay, I'm going to build an ecclesia, which means assembly. Now, remember, the interpreters of the English Bible said, you know what? We don't like that word ecclesia. That's a gathering. It's just a people, a body. So we're going to take a German word that means it's an actual place, and we're going to use that to interpret ecclesia, and that's where we get our English word church. 
That's why when, when we hear Jesus established an ecclesia, in English we hear church, and immediately we think of a building or we think of a place. He established a place. No, 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 no. He did not establish because you are sacred joy and you are sacred art. And you are sacred cat. You are the sacred. So no more sacred places because you are the sacred place. Okay? You are the sacred place. And, and, and so somehow we kind of mistranslate that, and that's okay. It's always going to be church probably from now on. But it's really a gathering, and it's, it's not a knockoff of some other religion. It was a brand-new movement, something entirely new. Now, and I'm saying all this fast because I'm trying to just give you a little quick review before I really get into this. The temple model... One was built around a standard that only the elite could meet. Okay, does that make sense? The temple model had a standard that only the elite can meet. And Jesus didn't like, he had an issue with that temple model. So what Jesus came in was he came in and he took that standard that only the elite could meet and he raised that standard, and he raised that standard so high that nobody could meet it. And then he says, what are you going to do now? Nobody can meet that. So here's the solution. I'll offer myself as a sacrifice once and for all. We'll be done with this. The temple model also requires followers to come and make peace with God. Okay, so in the temple model, you got to go to the temple. You got to make peace with God. You've got to make peace with God. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Forget that. I want you to make peace with your neighbor. I want you to make peace with your brother and sister. That's why he says, listen, if you come to the temple and you're there to make your sacrifice and you're waiting in that long line and all of a sudden you remember that somebody back home has an issue with you, leave your sacrifice there. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is you go back and you fix it there first. Whew. I'm about to preach. The third thing, the temple model was a nation was nation specific you always had to go to a nation they all had their own temple they all had their own god their own gods their own deities jesus came along and he says listen this new that i'm bringing it's not nation specific it is actually for every nation Every single nation group. That's why I told his disciples, I want you to go out and I want you to share this message, not to the Jewish regions, not just to where the Jews live, but every little ethnic group you can find. Every living, breathing being. This is for them. This is for them. And, and, and you got to understand that when you go, this message, it's not about geography. It's not about sacred places. In fact, when you go, I want you to understand this, that when you think you're standing on sacred ground, it's not the sacred ground that's important. It's the sacred person to your left and to your right and to the front and the back. I want you to think about this this morning. Just a real quick illustration just popped in my head. But think about this. If we were to take a trip right now, and we were all to go to the Holy Land, Jerusalem, we were all to walk around Israel and go, we were to go and visit the site where Jesus was buried, the tomb. 
where Jesus was buried. What Jesus is saying right here is that when you're standing, when you're standing at that site and you see the tomb that I was buried in and you got goosebumps all over your arms, I want you to look around because the most sacred thing around you is not the tomb, it's the people around you. It's the other foreigners, the other people who are just there visiting, the the spectators, they are the most important thing, not that ground that you're standing on. And so Jesus launched something completely new, a completely new initiative. And in the early days, the Gentiles began to flock to this message because the pagan system, it really didn't work for them anyway. As you know, the Jewish people began to flock to this message. In fact, all of Jesus's earliest followers were Jews, right? So the Jewish people began to flock to this message, and they loved it. I mean, Jesus was Jewish, right? But with the Jewish Christians in the first century, they had a very, very specific tension. It's hard to imagine, but I just want you to think about it. Now, This is hard to picture and it's hard to imagine, but I just want you to think about it for a second. As a Jewish person in the first century, they had, for them, they were being told and they were being taught that to follow Jesus, they were going to have to abandon the old ways to embrace this new thing that was called the Jesus movement or that was called the way. And so they were having to let go of this, let go of their customs and let go of their traditions. And that was tough, right? I mean, it's tough because even some of the things that we're challenged with today when it comes to hearing the gospel, when it comes to interpreting and understanding the gospel, when it conflicts with what mama told us and what daddy told us and with what my great-grandfather, who was a pastor, told me, it is really difficult to swallow because I don't want to abandon those ways, those teachings and my history and tradition. These people, the first century followers, the first century Jews, old ways die hard. And it was tough. It was tough. In fact, for them, you can understand this, they actually felt sacrilegious to abandon the Old Testament law. It felt sacrilegious and disrespectful to abandon everything that they had been brought up with. That brings us to a very, very important point that we're going to explore next week. So I'm just going to throw that out there. So don't miss it next week. A little commercial teaser. Uh, and, but that is this. Here's the point. And this is probably true for every one of us, if you are honest and think about it this way. But our consciences determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. Our consciences determine our religious realities. In fact, what is religious for us? What is religion for us? What we experience as religion. It's our conscience, whether it actually is reality or not. Now, we've all experienced this, and you struggle with this. Have you ever, have you ever said to anyone, hey, you shouldn't feel that way? Anybody ever said that? 
Have you ever been said that too? You shouldn't feel that way. Ruth, you shouldn't feel that way. Ruth comes to me, she's telling me about something that happened, and she's telling me about, you know, she just feels bad, blah, blah, blah. And I say to her, Ruth, you shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. When somebody says that to, to you, does that take away your guilt? No, it doesn't take away your guilt. When somebody says, Joy, you shouldn't feel guilty about that, it doesn't take away your guilt at all. Why? Because it just, it just doesn't. What happens is we still feel guilty about it. Why? Because your conscience has been fine-tuned to a certain set of values. In fact, at times, you'll be with friends and they will do things that bother you. And you think this. Come on. I know I'm preaching to the choir, and this probably never happened to you, but this is all for the people online. But imagine you have some friends, and they do something that kind of bothers you, or they, have, say, they say something, and it bothers you. And you think, man, they're a good person. I'm a good person. And they're doing this, and it, and it kind of bothers me. Or maybe they're a Christian, they're good. You do things that other people, they're like, man, they're a Christian. They're a good church-going Christian boy. And, and this bothers me that they do that or that they say that. And what happens is our consciences, they're fine-tuned to a certain set of values or a certain set of rules that we were raised in and that we were taught. And oftentimes, that is how we experience Religion. That is what we experience as religion. We call that religion. Scott and I were raised two separate ways. He's raised doing this, and that's okay. I'm raised that that's not okay. We both love Jesus, but I was raised that this is religion. He is wrong. He was raised. This is my religion. You are wrong. Our conscience fine tunes our realities, okay? It messes with us. A lot of you know that I grew up uh, in the Assemblies of God. My dad was an Assembly of God pastor. I was an Assembly of God pastor for years. And uh, I had lots of friends who youth pastor. I had all kinds of Church Christ, all that Catholic. Uh, in fact, when I was a youth pastor, I had all kinds of kids come into my youth group. But there was this one particular place that I was at that half of my youth group were uh, almost all Catholic kids. They all started coming to my youth group. We were growing, and they were loving my youth group and loving Jesus. And then they would tell me about that on weekends, they couldn't come to my church on Sundays because they had to go to Mass, and they had to confess because they came to my church on Wednesdays. And I would tell them, no, you don't have to go confess. You don't have to go confess you came to my church. It's not sin to come to my church, Right? And you don't even have to go confess your sin anyway. All you got to do is say, God, I'm sorry, whatever, you know, I apologize. I shouldn't do that. You know, that's all you get. You don't have to go to confession. And they would say, oh, no, we do. We do have to go to confession because that is how, because their conscience fine-tunes, okay? And that's the way it was. Now, if you're Catholic, don't leave because I'm not finished. I'm not going, I'm not done there. But... They couldn't imagine not going to Mass for confession. It just didn't make sense. I couldn't imagine going to Mass for confession because it didn't make 
since. Now, meanwhile, as a good Assembly of God boy growing up, I didn't drink alcohol because that was bad. And so I didn't, you know, I was, I was kind of grew up in this. It's bad. It's bad. In fact, I remember uh, spending a night with a friend of mine. His name was Andy Rodriguez, and he had a little 50, a Honda 50 motorcycle, and we would go ride his motorcycle up and down the road behind his house. One day after school, I rode the school bus home to his house. It was awesome. I don't remember. I was probably 10 years old, 9 years old. I don't remember, somewhere in there. And I get to his house. We play all afternoon outside. I'm spending the night with him. I got my bag, my clothes, and my backpack that I took to school that day. We're playing. We decide that we're hot. It's time to go get a drink. So we're in the house, and we're in the kitchen. We're getting a drink. We open up the refrigerator to see what there is, and I see beer. All of a sudden, I just don't feel good. I'm hot. And so I call my mom to come pick me up, and she comes to pick me up. And the whole reason was because I couldn't stay in that house. And this, not my parents didn't tell me this. This was just my conscience, fine-tuning. But I could not stay in that house with that beer in that house. They had beer. Their refrigerator had beer and open. It was wide open in public view. And I could not handle that. What if Jesus came back that night? He was going to skip that house for sure. And so I believe that, and my conscience had been fine-tuned somehow, to be, and that became religious to me. It was religious. It was truth to me, okay? And I remember sharing that story one time with the, some Catholic friends of mine that were going to my youth group, and they were like, yeah, we could drink. We drink with our priests. And I was like, What? You drink, yeah, we drink in church. We drink alcohol in church. I was like, what? <laughs> OMG. Not, you know, oh my goodness. That's what I was saying. You can't do that. Yeah, we drink in church. And I was like, you can't do that. And they were like, well, Jesus turned the water into wine. And I had the church excuse. Well, it wasn't the same wine back then as it is today. Okay? Different back then than it is today. I don't know if y'all can relate at all to what I'm talking about, but this, my conscience was fine-tuned, and I got on a rabbit trail for a second. But here, here's what happened. So, so moving on. The Jewish Christians, the Jewish Christians, so it, if you want to hear more about what I'm talking about right now, the next two weeks are going to be really important. Okay, about that fine-tuning our conscience stuff. But here's what happens. The early Jewish Christians, and, and this is totally understandable, the early Jewish Christians attempted to assimilate the Jesus model into the temple model. Well, of course they did, right? Why wouldn't they? I mean, after all, Jesus was the Messiah, right? And they started to believe that. The Jewish Christians, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. The Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and that's how they viewed it. And, and so they, they just hung on to their Old Testament thinking. They hung on to their temple ways, and then they just kind of assimilated, kind of merged and blended together the Jesus talk and the Jesus teachings into their current temple model. And I get that. 
Don't you get that? You understand why they would do that. But then Paul comes along, and I'm telling you, Paul is the superhero when it comes to the church of today. And we all just need to thank God for Paul and Paul's teaching and preaching. Because Paul comes along, and he rescues the church. Now, most of you know this, that when Paul steps onto the pages of history, he doesn't step on as Paul. He steps on as Saul of Tarsus, right? And he's a, a Pharisee. In fact, Paul would say that he's the best, knew, probably memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He, he knew the Torah. He knew the law, could quote the law. In fact, he was a teacher of the law. He hated Christians. He hated the church. He hated the Jesus movement. He could out-Pharisee them all. In fact, Paul, when the Jesus movement started up, Paul believed so much in the law and in the law and the prophets that he basically looked at God and said, you know what, God, don't worry about this Jesus movement that's, that's coming up. I got this. I'll take care of it. And single-handedly, Paul tried to destroy the Jesus movement. Okay, think about that. He was doing it for God. Okay, he, he was doing it for, he was a good teacher of the law. And this Jesus thing starts coming up and Paul goes, no, we're not going to have that. And so Paul, in the name of God, says, you know what, I'm going to stop this Jesus movement. And then all of a sudden, God gets a hold of Saul of Tarsus. And he has this encounter with God and he becomes a Jesus follower. I mean, he becomes a crazy Jesus follower. The, he becomes a Jesus follower, and he joins the Jesus movement. And so Paul, above anyone else, understood, hey, 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 wait a minute. This new Jesus thing that has come up, this is not Judaism 2.0. This is a complete departure from everything that we know. This is coming from Paul. Paul, the greatest teacher of this, the temple model. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. This Jesus thing, it's not a continuation of. It's a total departure. You can't, you, you can't add these two and put these two together. And anybody who begins to blend this with this, it is so dangerous. Paul knew that better than anyone that has ever walked the planet. He knew that merging and blending the two was not going to work. So on his first missionary journey, he had lots of missionary journeys. On, on his first missionary journey, he goes back to Galatia, okay? It's a Roman province in, in modern-day Turkey. He goes back to Galatia, died and raised from the dead, and he starts teaching Jesus ethics and Jesus movement. And you know what? The Jews that were there, they started embracing the Jesus message. They were like, yeah, yeah, we want Jesus. And so they started growing. All of a sudden, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, started going, oh, Oh, I love this Jesus. I love this message. I'm so glad that he did this for us, that he included us. And so the Gentiles start embracing this Jesus movement. So the Jews and the Gentiles all in, in Galatia and around Galatia, the, the movement starts growing, and he teaches them how to live. And so this movement, this ecclesia, he starts planting these ecclesias, these gatherings, and they start growing. He goes to the synagogues and he teaches them. 
and they embrace it. And then all of a sudden, his trip is over. And he says, okay, see you guys. I'm out of here. And he takes off. When he takes off, another group of missionaries come in right behind him. These missionaries are Jewish Christians. And they come in and they tell all these people in Galatia, the Jews and the Gentiles, they said, hey, listen, Oh, so Paul was here, and he started telling you about Jesus. Yeah, well, listen, he left some things out. He didn't tell you everything. If you want to follow Jesus and be a part of the Jesus movement, you have to become a Jew. You know, Jesus was a Jew. If you want to be a part of the Jesus movement, you Jews, you're fine. You Gentiles, you need to be a Jew. You need to become a part of the Jew. And this made sense to a lot of them. Okay, well, I guess if we're going to become a Jesus follower, we're going to do this Jesus thing, we need to become a Jew. So, for the next few minutes, and I'm going to do my best to to go through this quickly, but it's so important. For the next few minutes, I want to try to illustrate the crazy, extraordinary emotion uh, and anger that Paul has around the idea of mixing. You know, these Jewish people come in and they're saying, hey, you want to be a Jesus follower? You got you to gotta be a Jew. You got to mix it. So you got to come into our system here. And it makes Paul so angry. I mean, crazy angry because you can't mix the two. So Paul decides, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a letter because he couldn't go back at the moment. So he writes a letter to the church in Galatia. We call it Galatians. And he writes a letter, and this is to the followers that he has already, he's gone. He taught them. He explained to them. They became Jesus followers. They were in. They loved it. And then he leaves And now they've kind of been manipulated. So Paul is writing them a letter. So now you understand who this letter's to, to address what's going on. And so uh, he's addressing, really what he's addressing, he calls them, Paul calls them Judaizers. Okay? Everybody say Judaizers. Now, Judaizers were Jewish Christians who believed that Gentiles must convert to Judaism to join the Jesus movement. Okay? They believed that Jesus was simply an extension of the Old Testament. If you're going to be a Jesus follower, that's what you got to do. If you're going to be a Jesus follower, that's what you got to do. What they were saying was, if you want to be a Jesus follower, you Gentile men need to be circumcised. Okay? You need to be circumcised. You need to go. You need to have surgery. Okay? But hey, you know, We're going to follow Jesus. I mean, if we're all in. And these Judaizers, they're saying things like, hey, he died for you. The least you can do is have a surgery for him, right? That was probably their uh, witness pamphlet or whatever. They're like, hey, you know, Jesus died. That was their big catch line right there. Jesus died for you. The least you can do is have a surgery for him, right? So they're going around and they're passionate about that. So when Paul finds out he is furious because they've now undermined the purity of of Jesus' message, uh, and so Paul gets so angry, he becomes apoplectic. 
okay? Apoplectic. What did I say first? Apoplectic, okay? Now, that's a word that we don't use a lot. It's a fun word to say, but he uses that, and it's, they, he becomes so angry and so indigent upon what's happening when these Judaizers come in and they start tainting the message. And, and for us looking at it, maybe even people back those days, they would look at it and go, well, what's the big deal, right? Because Jesus was a Jew, and now Jesus came and, and he did this whole awesome thing and he taught, the, taught these great things. What's the big deal if they want to come in and be Jews, you know, these Gentiles? What's the big deal? And Paul, it enraged him. It was such a big deal. You can't. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk to you about Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can open there. If you want to follow along on your app, be a good place to follow along because we're going to go verse by verse, a few verses into this. We're going to talk about exactly how Paul felt and why he felt the way he did. So now that you have context and you understand who he's writing this letter to, uh, it'll make a lot more sense to you. So, Paul writes his letter, and he opens it up like this. He's writing to these Galatians and these Jewish people. He's really trying to teach Galatians. He says, wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute. Everybody hold up. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, <laughs> I pause there for just a second because I want to say this. If your version of Christianity does not make you feel free, then you are doing it wrong. Man, that, right, that alone right there should set some of us free. If your version of church, religion, Christianity does not make you feel free and alive, you are doing it wrong. It's not the right. It's not what Jesus brought in. You're not experiencing the full version of Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus because it is described as freedom. So he says, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again. In other words, you've already been here. You've already carried this burden. He says, don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And then he says this, verse 2. Mark my words. Now, mark my words. There you see an exclamation point. On the, in the English Bible, you see an exclamation point. In Greek, there's not an exclamation point. But the words that were used in Greek were so passionate and full of fire that in English it can only be translated by putting an exclamation point there. So when Paul says this, he says it with such passion and fire that they put it. So he says, mark my words. I, Paul, as if they didn't know who was writing this letter. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. 
Now, I got to explain circumcision real quick. Paul was not against the process or the procedure of circumcision. That's not the issue here. In fact, Paul was a Jew. He was a Jewish man. He had been circumcised. All of Jesus's original followers were Jews and had been circumcised. Many of you, in fact, have been circumcised. In fact, if you've been circumcised, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just making sure you're paying attention. Paying attention. Tracking with me here. I kind of should have let that go for a second, see what Joel's reaction would be, but I didn't want to do that. So here's the thing, and this is so important. Paul wasn't against the procedure of circumcision. In this context, circumcision represents the old covenant. Okay? Last week, we learned that Jesus inaugurated, instituted, or he launched a new covenant. So to bring back in and address circumcision was bringing back in the old covenant because Jesus launched something new. And all of a sudden, they're reaching back into the old. Now, listen, he's talking to Gentile men here. He's not preaching children's church, kids' church. These are not babies. These are grown-up men. And he says, look, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you are embracing the old covenant. You don't need to be circumcised. That was a sign that the nation of Israel belonged exclusively to Jesus in a unique way, exclusively to God, excuse me, not Jesus, exclusively to God in a unique way. That was for the Jewish people as a sign of their covenant between them and God. That was that. This is a different covenant. Jesus brought and established a different covenant. And and Paul says this, consequently, if you're circumcised as an adult, Christ is of no value to you. That is strong language. Wouldn't you all agree? That is very strong language for Paul to say, God is no good to you if you're going to do this. Wow. He says, you have abandoned the new to embrace the old. He goes on and he says this. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised. Now again, this has nothing to do with us. This is not about the procedure. This is about the covenant. He says that is obligated to obey. He says, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. If that doesn't make you go, then you don't understand what I'm saying, okay? Because he's saying, if you're going to do this, if you're going to reach back for this moment and say, oh, you know what? All of you guys are Jews. Jesus came in. Jesus was a Jew. I want to be a part of the Jesus movement. No big deal, so I'm going to be circumcised. Paul's saying, look, if you're going to do that, then you have to actually jump back into the old covenant, and you have to follow every single law in the old covenant. This was a big deal because what they were trying to do with a little bit of new, a little bit of what they're trying to do is to merge and blend a little bit of old with a little bit of new, a little bit of old with a little bit of new. And they were trying to blend it and make everybody happy. <clears throat> and Paul's saying that ain't going to work. 
that ain't going to work. In fact, if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that and you're going to go be circumcised, you're going to change your dietary law. You're going to change what you eat. You're going to change what you dress. You're going to change how you act on Sundays, on Sabbath day. You're going to change every 630 law. You go do this one. You go do this one. You're stepping into 630, my friend. Paul was angry. He was mad, and he says, listen, and you have no more relationship. with God is no good to you if you're going to go dig back into the old. And then he says this, you who are trying to be justified, which means to get right with God, you who are trying to get right with God, you who are trying to be justified by the law have actually been alienated. Now, he's talking to the people who thought, They were Christians. These were Gentile Christians. And he tells them, you know what? You actually have been alienated from Christ. They're like, no, no, we haven't. We haven't been. We're just trying to be good boys and girls and and, and do what we're told. You know, take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We're trying to be more like Jesus. And Jesus was a Jew. And so we're trying to do that. And he says, no, 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 no. You've been alienated from Christ. And then he goes on, he says this, you have fallen away from grace. I hate it when preachers use these scriptures out of context because Paul wasn't writing that to me. He was writing that to very specific people in Galatia, targeting a very specific problem that was going on. And he says, listen, if you want to go and you do this, then you've actually fallen away from grace. What is he talking about? Let me give you uh, one of the easiest ways I could illustrate this. Let's just say one Sunday, somebody comes up. I'm just going to use Jonathan for a second. Uh, And Jonathan, this is not a hint for you to do this. This is just an illustration. So let's say Jonathan comes up to me one Sunday, and he says, Pastor Jared, I got, man, my family has been so blessed by this church and by the teachings of the exchange. My kids are blessed, man. My marriage is just blessed, and I just can't say thank you enough. I wanted to give you a gift card, a $100 gift card to Saltgrass Steakhouse. Don't, I'm, don't do this. I mean, if you want to, you could, no, don't. I wouldn't accept it now. But he, he comes up to me and he says that. And then I look at Jonathan and I say, oh, Jonathan, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. But you know what? I can't take that. I can't take that. And he says, no, no, you got to take it. It's a, you, y'all, you've been such a blessing to me. I just got to give it to you. And I say, you know what? I, I, let, me give you, let me pay you for it. No, no, no. Let me, let me give you $75 at least. It's a $100 gift card. No, no, you just take it. And I say, Jonathan, come on, I can't take it. And he says, but you, it's a gift. You know, you've been such a blessing. And I say, you know what? Let me at least pay half of it, $50. And he says, okay, fine. And I pay him $50 for that $100 gift card. At that point, it is no longer a gift card. It is now a discount card because I took the gift out of it. 
Does that make sense? I took the gift out of it. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, grace is the hallmark of the Christian experience. Grace is that God knew everything about you, and he still picked you. God knew everything about you, and he still loved you. He knew your goods and your bads and your uglies. He knew the worst of the worst of the worst that you could possibly imagine, and he still picked you. That is grace. God chose you to be his children. He adopted you to be his. He picked you. That is grace. And the moment, hear me right now, in a surgery or through law, you start to try to earn it through some kind of surgery or through law keeping. The moment you try to earn that grace in any other way, you've actually done away with grace. Even if it's just $5, it still has become a discount card, not a gift. And let me tell you, friends, grace is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't trade for it. You can't bargain for it. You can't have a surgery and call it even. Oh, man. So he goes on, he says, listen, the moment that you start bargaining with God, the moment you start trying to earn your way, the moment that you say, God, did you see what I did? God, did you see what I did? God, how am I doing? Did you see what I did? Did you see the surgery that I had, the sacrifice that I made? Did you see everything that I did that I offered you? And we think that God's going to go, you know what? I did see that. Thank you so much. You're now in. You're one of my favorites. I, I brought you in. The moment that we adopt any part of that system, Paul says this, then you've fallen away from grace. The moment you think that you've done something for God, through God, or in the name of God, for God, you've done wasted the gift card. You made a discount card. And you've fallen away from grace. Now, this that, that is really extreme, right? You haven't seen extreme yet. It's about to get extreme right here. Here's the extreme part. He says this, verse number six, for in Christ Jesus, neither the circumcised nor the uncircumcised has any value. Okay? He says, look, I'm a Jew, and I've been circumcised. I waited the eight days like all the good Jewish families did. I waited the eight days, and then I was circumcised. I'm a Jew, and you know what? Being a circumcised Jew doesn't give me any more or less value in the eyes of God. It doesn't it does anything. He looks at the Galatians covenant, but that has been done away with. And Jesus' covenant does anything. He looks at the Galatians. He says, hey, you Galatians, you haven't been circumcised. And God sees you no different than he sees me. Circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't do any good at this point. Because Jesus brought in something brand new. Now, friends, if you haven't been paying attention, tune in for a minute. Tune in for a minute. Because what he says next, this is the really, really extreme part. Uh, a lot of people don't even realize this is in the New Testament because we just kind of floss over it real quick. But if you're not a church person or if you're not a Christian, please listen. Because what he's about to say, my hunch is, is probably one of the reasons that you begin to resist church in the first place. Um, like I said last week, that the things that people resist about the church are oftentimes the things that the church should resist 
in the first place. People don't resist church because of Jesus, typically. It's usually because of the people, how people treat them, how church treats them, how religion treats them. Anyway, now this is coming from the Apostle Paul, who wrote over half, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. This is being written from the Apostle Paul, who is probably a reason that we're even able to be Christians today, uh, because since we were Gentiles, um, primarily because of the work that he did. This is written from an ex-Pharisee who had memorized the entire law and prophet, or the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. This is written from Paul. I'm trying to tell you how important what he says next, how extreme it is. He says this, verse number six. The only thing, everybody say the only thing. Man, I'm about, whew, this gives me goosebumps thinking about it. The only thing, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What? Wait, time out. Time out. What is this all about? So you're telling me, Paul, let's think through this. Everybody think through this with me out loud. So Paul is trying to tell us that the only thing that counts, so surely he means the only thing besides the ten, right? The Ten Commandments. No, it's not what he said. He said the only thing. Surely he means the only thing outside, you know, besides the 630 that you're already keeping like a good religious person, right? No, that's not what he says. Surely he means the only thing outside of, you know, making sure that you did say a sinner's prayer out loud and somebody heard you say that, right? No, he says the only thing that counts, Paul, how many things count? He says the only thing, the only thing, one and only thing that matters, the only thing of value, the only thing that counts is what our faith expressing itself through love. Circumcision and the whole temple model goes like this. God, how am I doing? God, how am I doing? How am I doing, God? How am I doing, God? Are we good, God? Are we good, God? Are we good? Is everything okay? And, and, and if you're a Christian, uh, you got to believe this this morning. If you're a believer, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, Paul wants you to know this. You're good. Okay? You're good. This is what Paul's trying to tell you. You're good. See, the temple model wants you to not feel like you're good because it keeps you faithful to the temple model. Did I say that out loud? One of the reasons that it's so important for pe preachers to preach hell and sin and all that is because it keeps people in the church. We can make people feel, it keeps, it, it, goes, it goes back to sacred people with sacred text, you, manipulating things and saying what they want to say because it keeps people in, that, in the building because they start feeling bad. Paul's saying, listen, if you believe Jesus Christ was your Messiah, it, that's all fine. Stop going. Am I good? Are we good? Am I good? Did I do okay? Am I sinning? Am I, am I full of sin? Are we right? Or is everything right? That's the temple model. Paul's saying, look, you are in. Quit worrying about what God thinks about you. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you're in. You're in. If you believe that, you're in. If you believe that he died for your sins, you're in. If someone is going to die for you, you're in, right? They love you that much. So he says, quit looking up and start looking around. 
okay? So quit going, am I good, am I good, am I good, am I good? That's the temple model. He says, stop looking up and start looking around because the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is how you treat people. Paul goes on. He, it's even not about how you treat God. It's how you treat people. Listen, this is a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. Because if, if, I'm in, if in my thinking I'm thinking about God, even if you couldn't find a temple, if your life depended on it, if your whole approach to God is, God, I hope we're good. God, I hope we're good. God, I hope we're good. Temple thinking, Paul says, that doesn't matter. That day is over. Put a bow on it. It's done. So he goes on and he says this. And he's, again, he's talking to the Gentiles who... The Judaizers, you were running a good race. You were doing great. When I was with you guys in Galatia and teaching you Jesus, you were, everything was great. I mean, we were growing. The movement was growing. The, the family was growing. Everything was good. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to you. you. You Jews, you looked at your heritage. You said, man, I appreciate my heritage, but I'm all in on this Jesus movement. You Gentiles, you embraced. You went all in on this Jesus movement. He says, you were running a good race. And then maybe he uses a play on words here because he was talking about the whole circumcision thing. I don't know. But he says, who cut in on you? Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? And then he says something that I think some of you could appreciate. He says, just remember this, that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. That a single cell fungus, that's what yeast is, you know, so makes you feel good right there. He says, just a little single cell fungus. You just take it, put a little pinch of that into some ooey gooey dough. You come back, and it has worked through the entire thing. It has ruined everything. He's saying, listen, it only takes a small dose of the wrong thing to corrupt the whole thing. That's his point. That's where Paul's going. Paul knew that this something new was awesome, and that if they keep trying to pull just a little bit of that old into this, it was going to ruin the whole thing. Paul's got a lot of emotion here, and, 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 and we just don't understand all this emotion. But Paul, he's really fired up. He's really angry, really, really frustrated. You want to know how angry? I'll tell you how angry. Glad you asked. He addresses the agitators, the people, the Judaizers, Judaizers, I don't know why I keep saying that funny, Judaizers who came in and started like diluting the message of Jesus, these Jewish Christians, Paul now addresses them and he says this, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Uh, pasted. He says, those of you that came in and you started saying, hey, you Gentiles, if you really want to be a part of the movement, you should become Jews because Jesus was a Jew. That's the way this whole thing works. Paul says, oh yeah, if that's the case, you should go ahead and cut it off. The word he uses here in Greek is this, 
Apocopto. Everybody say Apocopto. Apocopto. Don't forget this word, Apocopto. This is the word that Paul uses in Greek. And he says, those of you agitators who came in and you started tainting this gospel of Christ, you should go ahead and he says, Apocopto. Cut it off. That's what it means. I didn't make that up. It's in the Bible. Got real quiet in here. Really quiet. Y'all weren't sure if you should laugh because it's a joke or what, but this is how angry Paul is. I mean, Paul, you're so extreme. And Paul says, you don't understand. You don't understand. Paul was in. He was the first century leader. He was in the church. He was in teaching the law, establishing the law. He was in. He was the greatest Pharisee that he says ever lived. He was it. And then this Jesus movement comes along and Paul says, I'll put a stop to that. Don't worry, God. I'll take care of that. And then the next thing you know, God gets a hold of Paul. He sees everything with eyes wide open. And he says, wow, this thing, this thing that Jesus did, it's brand new. Jesus actually fulfilled and put an end to this. This is in. I'm all in. I'm all in. And he starts teaching people. And as soon as they start bringing a little bit of this back in, he says, that is so dangerous. You cannot mix the two. So dangerous that he tells them, you know what, just go ahead. If you're going to talk about circumcision, don't stop with just the circumcision part. You go ahead and take it off. (sighs) Have you ever heard that preached in church? You guys got way too serious on me. Paul knew that if you try to blend, that you're going to lose the best part. It's not going to blend 50-50. It's, it's not going to blend 80-20. It's going to be 99% temple thinking with just about 1% of Jesus, Jesus' teaching, because the temple dominated, dominated their land. He says, look, this is how big of a deal this is. I wish those guys would just go all the way. Go all the way. You can't try to mix, blend, and merge. Paul knew this was going to happen. If they tried to mix and merge, Paul knew this. One, that leaders would become self-righteous. Listen, you've seen this all throughout history. Some of you have even seen it in more recent history. People, leaders become self-righteous because what, that's what happened in the temple model. In the temple model, they become self-righteous. You know why? Because they interpreted the text. They interpreted the text the way that they saw the text. And so you got people like Alan would go to this religious leader, and they would interpret the text in a way that made themselves okay, but he was not okay. But if you do what I tell you to do and you pay enough money or you do these steps, then you can be fine because I'm fine, right? And leaders become self-righteous. If you do this, then you can be fine because I'm fine. And I will pretend that I'm fine. Otherwise, if I don't pretend that I'm fine and y'all find out that I'm actually not fine, then you won't let me be your religious leader anymore. 
And so religious leaders become self-righteous. And then not only that, Paul knew this, that followers would become hypocrites. Because what happens is they dumb down. They dumb down the law. They dumb down the rules. Well, I don't really, y'all have seen this. You look at social media. You see this every day. People dumb down the rule. Well, the Bible says this. The scripture says, well, I don't think it means that. Well, I don't think it means this. Well, I don't think it means that. And everybody just starts dumbing down all the rules until it fits my narrative, until it fits my situation. So I dumb it down, manipulate it enough, and that's what happens. Followers would become hypocrites. Paul knew that in the temple model, and he knew that that's what would happen if we started blending and mixing and matching. The other thing that he knew is that the text would be manipulated, right? He knew that people would start to come in and say, oh, that's not what the text means. Oh, that's not what the scripture says. Oh, it's not this. And, and, and he knew that that was going to happen. The last thing that he knew, this is a big one, is that he knew that people would be mistreated. Have you ever been mistreated by a church? You don't have to shake your head or say yes, whatever. But have you ever been a part of a church or a part of uh, a religious system that you were not treated fairly or poorly? And This is a rule that I had. And when I was in a, as an executive pastor at a church before this, this was a rule that I would tell our leadership all the time. Relationship over rules, Okay. People would say, well, we have standards. I remember one time we had a huge issue because we had a, a floor section and then we had this little mezzanine balcony section. And there was this old man that would come to our church and he wanted to sit in the balcony. Well, we had it roped off. So he would come to church and he would undo the ropes, do the ropes back, and he'd go sit where he wanted to sit. And, and the lights were off, you know, in that section. And it drove people and leadership crazy and drove our ushers crazy. And I, since I was in my the, my, the position I was in, they would come to me and say, Pastor Jerry, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And I would say, rules over, I mean, relationship over rules every time. Okay. Yes, we have a rule, but number one, relationship. <laughs> and and I'm, I even made people in leadership mad at that statement because this, that's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. The church has got really good at rules over relationship. We need to get better at relationship over rules. So, here's the main thing. You, my brothers, and my sisters, were called to be free. This is verse 13. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, Serve one another humbly in love. Listen, I, this isn't about some ooey-gooey, now you just get to do whatever you want to because you have this freedom or whatever because he died for all of you because you're now not under all these laws and all these rules. Now you just get to do whatever you want to. He says it's not about that game. If you think it's about doing whatever you want to do, then you don't know the one main thing. You don't understand it. You, you, you weren't taught the way I was taught. Listen, it's not about doing whatever you want. It's about, Paul says, don't, don't lose your freedom in this. Make sure you use it to love people, that you use it to love people. 
Here's how you use your freedom. You serve one another humbly in love for the entire law. That's the entire law. He's talking about the whole Old Testament. The entire law is fulfilled. Like it's done. Put a bow on it. It's done. Paul says the entire law is done, fulfilled. And he says this, in keeping one command. One command. Gentiles, you don't have to go back and memorize all 630, learn all 630 laws. You don't have to learn the Tim. He said the entire law is fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself, Galatians 5.14. This is so powerful because this is in the book of Leviticus. Elena, if you could come up here for a second. This is in the book of Leviticus. This was the Jewish law, right? So when Paul quotes this in Galatians chapter 14, or chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, listen, the whole entire law can be fulfilled in this one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's powerful because that verse is also found in Leviticus. Paul knew that. Paul knew that because he was a good Pharisee. And they taught that. And what Paul initially was saying is, you know what? You know what? This temple system, the old thing, they actually had the solution all along. The main thing, which is to let our faith express itself through love, the main thing, they actually had the main thing the whole time. They just didn't know it. They had the main thing, the main thing. He says, listen, the main thing. Have you ever seen the movie, uh, man, just slipped my mind, um, Wizard of Oz? Anybody? The Wizard of Oz, a two and a half hour movie. It should have been a 12-minute movie. No commercials, right? Because you got Dorothy and, and the tornado or cyclone comes and it hits and she's like, oh, Eddie, Eddie, spins, blah, 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 hits her head, boom. She wakes up in this other land, all these weird people and beings walking around. And then she sees the witch and she takes the shoes off of the witch and she puts the shoes on, right? At that point, she click her heels three times, click, click, click. There's no place like home. Bam, she's home, 12 minutes, no commercials, movie's over. Right? But instead, she takes the shoes off the witch, puts them on, and then she goes through two and a half hours when she had the key on her feet the entire time. What Paul's saying is, listen, even the Jews, even the law and the prophets, they had it right, but it was just so mixed with everything else, they couldn't see it. They couldn't experience it. He says, listen, the only thing that counts, Galatians 5, 6, is faith. Your faith expressing itself through love. When you get that right, you pray differently. When you get that right, you see people differently. When you get this right, your religious experience as a Christian, in fact, if you're even if you're not a Christian, your religious experience will be characterized by freedom more than anything else. When you get it right, we treat people 
better because Paul is so mad that they're mixing and matching and they're trying to convince these Galatians to pull some of this old law. And he says, listen, only one thing matters. It's the main thing. Can you imagine just for a second how different your world would be right now? Think about this, honestly. You're thinking about everybody that you know, the people you hang out with, people you work with, people you fellowship with, people you whatever, your entire world, all your family. Think of how different the entire world would be if judged by this. Christians lived by this. If just the Christians would say, you know what? I'm not going to rate myself by church attendance, by consistency. I'm not going to rate myself by some internal holiness. But 100%, I'm going to grade myself because I know what's most important to God. And that's how I treat people. How faith manifests and expresses itself through me in love. What if just Christians decided, hey, you know what? The most important thing is how I respond to this person. The most important thing is how I don't respond to this person. I can't tell you how many times, and I've done this many times. In fact, I've done it to Jay. I've, I've been so angry before, and I hope y'all forgive me for this, just being transparent. But I've been so mad, and, and here recently, a few months ago, there was a situation that made me so angry. I wrote just an awesome Facebook message for these two individuals. So mad. I sent it to Jonathan. I said, you think this is good? You think they'll get the picture? He's like, well, yeah. My intent was really to not do that, but I was so angry. And Paul's saying, listen, if we could just figure out how to stop and ask this question, what does love require of me? Whew, that's a dangerous question. I challenge you this week. I challenge you this week to ask yourself that all week long. Every situation. Every situation. If you're playing golf, if you're driving down the road, if you're sitting at a restaurant and a situation happens and you have a chance to respond, maybe you're angry, maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're disgusted. But before you respond, you ask yourself this question, what does love require of me? What's the main thing? Because the main thing, Paul says, the most important thing is your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of that he paid a price for you and that you're in that faith expressing and manifest it becoming real life and you responding back in love. What does love require of you? Will you stand with me this morning? Um... Man, I hope you, you know, be back next week. 
I'm, I'm so excited about next week's message too. I thought maybe I would just call a Sunday of preaching. We just all gather all day on Sunday and I'll just preach all six sermons back to back to back to back because I'm so passionate about this because my conscience has been fine-tuned my whole life to believe things that weren't true about myself to believe things that weren't true about people, to believe things that weren't true about other religions and other denominations. And I find now how miserable I have been in my relationship with God most of my life. I was reading a Facebook message that somebody sent me about three or four years ago, and it popped up uh, on my phone yesterday and I was reading back and I was surprised at how free I have become because in that message I say that because I just was living with all these rules and regulations and it was controlling how I respond to Joy, how I respond to Kathy, how I respond to everybody because it's who, that's my religious experience and Paul says nope, nope, nope you missed it. There's only one thing that matters, and that's faith expressing itself in love. So this week, that's your challenge. I dare you, I dare you, dare you, double dog dare you to use that. And all week long, just ask yourself, okay, what does love require of me when that person just royally sets you off? Ask yourself, what does love require of me? Because that's the most important thing. And it'll change your life. Father, thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for one, sending your son that he's given us. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the revelation that he had and the, the fire and the fervor that he had, the boldness that he had to stand up, to stand up against all the the pressure of religion and all the pressure of the temple model and all the pressure of, of the religious people and the Jews against him as he stood up and said, listen, only one thing counts. There's only one thing that matters. The whole law can be filled, fulfilled in this one thing. So God, this morning, I thank you for that. I thank you for Paul, for his writings and his teaching and what you did in his life because that has today rippled all the way to me and affected my life. And I want to live the rest of my life, not just this week, the rest of my life asking that question. What does love require of me? So Jesus, Father, I dedicate my life to you and Matt's so that I live my life manifesting love in everything that I do, every decision that I make. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.